0: And what a blessing that the Lord has given to us such a a precious treasure as his word. And we are privileged now to be able to come to that word and to read God's word to us. I mentioned sometimes that there are people throughout Christendom uh, waiting to hear, looking to hear, sometimes manufacturing ways to hear from God uh, when God has spoken to us fully and finally Uh, through his word and so we have it as a precious treasure let's turn it turn our Bibles to Romans chapter 11 this morning after quite a few weeks in this section of the book of Romans chapters 9 through 11 we'll be wrapping up Lord willing these uh, these chapters this morning let us read this morning Uh, we'll begin in verse 11 And read down through the end of the chapter. Romans chapter 11, beginning in verse 11, and this is God's word that He has given to us. Let's listen with good attention this morning, appropriate attention as God speaks to us. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. If the dough offered as firstfruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you." Then you will say, Branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off, and even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut, uh, cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree, and grafted, contrary to nature, into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. We pray that you would bless it as it has been read, as it has been heard, and now we pray that you would bless it as it is preached. Bless us as we hear your word this morning. We pray that you would instruct us concerning your will, O God, concerning your acting in history in these ways. We pray that we would come away this morning rejoicing from hearing your word and saying that it is good to be in the house of the Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you may be seated. You will, of course, want to keep your Bibles out and turned to our passage as we work our way through it this morning. It is said that everyone loves a good mystery. And this morning, God has one for us. Paul has been speaking in these three chapters now about Israel, about the nation of Israel, a nation chosen by God in the opening books of the Bible, a nation given great blessings and great gifts uh, and great promises, a nation whose history is recorded for us in the, the Old Testament. A nation whose members, in fact, wrote those books. And a nation that, at seemingly almost every opportunity, every decision point, has turned away from God who chose them. A nation that has embraced false gods, that had lived contrary to the the laws that God gave to them, that tried to be as much like the nations around them as they could instead of acting like God's own unique people. A nation that disregarded and even killed God's messengers that he sent to them to keep them from these dangers. A nation that when God finally said, I will send my son to them, surely they will hear him. That they rejected him and they killed him. And a nation that presented with the good news of Jesus Christ crucified, the news that he is the only means of their redemption, a nation that rejected that message and turned with great anger and hostility upon the ones, the New Testament prophets and apostles who brought to them the message of salvation. And a nation that, as a result of all of this, was finally rejected by God. Left to go their own way. While God brought the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ to others, to other nations, to the Gentiles, who received it gladly. And were, as Paul writes this, by droves coming into the kingdom through faith in Christ and still yet today. Paul has presented for us in these chapters answers to questions about this rejection of Israel by God and of the rejection of God by Israel. This rejection of his people, did, did it represent a failure? Not just of the Jews, but it, did it represent a failure of God and, of, and, and his choosing the Jews as his people? as the word of God failed, Paul asked back, to, back at the beginning? And was that reversible? Or was Israel doomed to forever be outside of the mercy of God? The mere thought of which, if you remember back to chapter 9, brought Paul great despair. And what lay in the future? As Paul wrote, what lies in the future as we read it today for the Jews, both from the the perspective of 1st century Paul and the perspective of 21st century us. This morning, we come to a summary and a conclusion of these questions and the answers that Paul has given to us in chapters 9 and 10 and 11. And we begin, if that statement with which I opened this morning is true, we begin with a statement which you will all be very happy to hear because we begin with a mystery, a mystery revealed. Now this mystery, as well as other mysteries in the New Testament, and there are several in Paul's writings, are not the type of mysteries that that original statement was uh, in, intended to, to reflect. These aren't mysteries like unsolvable riddles or, or as in the days of Paul, the Some special knowledge that's only for the properly initiated. But the idea of a mystery in the Bible refers to truths that are relatively obscure and hidden in the Old Testament that then are made clear, that are revealed in and through the teaching of the New Testament scriptures. Uh, One example. One of the mysteries that Paul speaks of in First Corinthians 15 is the, the mystery of the resurrection and the glorification of our bodies. The Old Testament doesn't talk a lot about that. But Paul then reveals it in First Corinthians 15 as he says, Behold, I tell you a mystery that we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. So that's the idea of a mystery. And that's the idea that that comes into play here. Paul begins these final verses in chapter 11 with the revelation of another mystery. And this mystery comes up as, and Paul explains it as he's continuing what he was talking about at the end of last week in the passage that we were looking at. In verses 11 through 24, remember that Paul was specifically, and we read it this morning, addressing his Gentile readers and And warning them, verse 13, he says, now I am speaking to you Gentiles. And one of the things that he wanted to warn them about and speak to them about, it's in verse 17 there, he says, but if some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you and here he continues that in verse twenty-five, where he says, "Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery." Again, Gentiles, listen to this, he says, and and grasp it so that you can maintain a proper attitude, a properly humble attitude in regard to God's rejection of Israel and the state of Israel. And the the great gift of God bringing you in. And then he gives to us the content of this mystery in verses 25 and 26. The rest of, of verse 25 and verse 26. He says, here is the mystery. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion, he will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So we want to deal with that mystery. And I have to tell you, as we come to this, that the understanding of these words, and especially verse 26, and especially one phrase in verse 26, are among or are the subject of much debate in the church. But we've really already come to understand most of what they have to say from what we looked at last week as we looked at how God worked with, the, with, with Israel and then with the Gentiles and, and with Israel again. The mystery that Paul is talking about revolves around that. It revolves around the hardening and the extent and the purpose of the rejection of the Jews by God. The hardening and the extent and the purpose. So we're going to look at that. First, the hardening. I said we've already covered this in in several messages. We've been talking about this as we've been working our way, especially through chapter 11, that God has justly, sovereignly caused a hardening to come upon the nation of Israel. Remember back from chapter 9, verse 18 and chapter 11 verse 7 that God shows mercy to whom he will and he hardens whom he will and we're reminded of that here in verse 25 because we see that this partial hard, this partial hardening is not something that has happened to Israel but Paul says that it has come upon Israel God has hardened them God has blinded their eyes They saw it in the Old Testament, Paul saw it in his day, and we see it today as Israel continues to reject Jesus as the Messiah and to reject the New Testament and its gospel as the means of eternal life. And when Paul says that it has come upon Israel, he is referring, as in almost every other use in chapters 9 through 11, to the nation as a whole. He is speaking corporately. Now, he's not speaking about every specific individual, but as he speaks, he is speaking of Israel as the nation. We also see, though, as we've learned over the past couple of sermons, that that this hardening, this spirit of stupor, chapter 11, verse 8 said, this hardening is neither total nor is it final. Paul calls it here a partial hardening that has come. So that's the hardening that, that has happened, the hardening that is part of this mystery. We also have to look at the extent, because that is part of this mystery. The fact that it is limited, and we've been looking at this, that this, it is limited both in its scope and in its duration. It's limited in its scope, isn't it? Paul went to great lengths to prove this in the opening verses of chapter 11. Remember, Paul said, God has not rejected his people finally. Uh, and he has not rejected them totally. Not all Jews are rejected. Remember, Paul said, Exhibit A is me, Paul said. I'm a Jew, and I am not rejected. In the same way, remember God, Paul said, has always kept and always preserved for himself that remnant, that Israel within Israel, a certain number who have embraced the promises, who have accepted the, the, the work of God, salvation by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ. God has always had this remnant, just as he told Elijah back in the Old Testament, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Or to put it another way, this hardening is over some of Israel, but not all of Israel. It's also limited, we've seen, and Paul is talking here about, that it's limited in its duration. That too is part of this mystery that Paul is revealing before us. Paul said here that a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So this time of hardening, this time of blindness, this time of stupor, this time of spiritual dullness and rejection has a terminus. It has an end. There is coming a time when it will be removed. And the trigger, if you will, for, to the removing of it is the coming in, the, the salvation, the bringing into the kingdom, the justification of what Paul calls the fullness of the Gentiles. And that word fullness refers to, to a full complement, a full number. So in the mind and the plan of God, there is a point where this will be accomplished. It's likely not an exact, specific number, but there will come a time when the full flow of Gentiles, in will come to a point where God will determine that his work of bringing in Gentiles will have been accomplished according to his eternal decree from before the foundations of the world. And according to Paul... At whatever point that is, God knows. We don't know. There is no use of us speculating that. It is sin to speculate about when it will be because that is something that is in the mind of God and he is not revealed to us. But once that happens, once that point is reached, then this partial hardening will be removed. Now this also, this idea, the way Paul phrases this here, where he talks about how this partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, that also leads us to the conclusion that this is something that has yet to happen. It hasn't happened yet. It'll happen in the future. And probably, based on what we saw last week, it will probably happen quite close to the end of the age, to the return of Christ. Now, once again, this is not because God is going to come and and rapture the church away and then start to restore a physical millennial kingdom on earth, but it is because God will have fulfilled that part of his plan. (coughs) Where the coming in of the Gentiles has worked to do something. What was that? We saw it last week. It has worked to make... Israel jealous verse 11 verse 14 Paul talked about that so the fact and the extent of this hardening of the nation of Israel is part of this mystery this mystery that is revealed to Paul and that he is now revealing to us his readers and the final piece the conclusion of this is seen in verse 26 where we learn of the purpose in this mystery <clears throat> if you remember from last time Paul offered up some amazing truths about how God has worked throughout history how he has worked with these two groups the Jews and the Gentiles and how at different times in history um, and as we looked into the future at different times to come. First one and then the other of these groups has been sort of in the forefront of God's work, of God's dealings. In the Old Testament, the Jews were God's people and the special recipients of his grace, by the Gent- while the Gentiles were excluded from that, by and large. When the Jews then, in the New Testament, rejected Christ when he came... As we said earlier, God rejected them and (coughs) turned, as we've seen, to the Gentiles. The gospel was sent to them. And from the book of Acts until today, Gentiles throughout the world have been brought in in huge numbers into the kingdom of God and resulted in great salvation blessings to them. We who sit here this morning are evidence of that. And we saw that by the design of God, at some point, perhaps imperceptibly, perhaps noticeably, that will bring about jealousy on the part of Israel. And their, their hardening then will be removed. And they will, by grace, believe the gospel. They will turn to Christ and embrace Christ by faith and be born again and be converted and be justified and be adopted and be sanctified by the triune God and receive eternal life. And that is at the core of the mystery that Paul reveals here. Look at verse 26. And in this way, he says, all Israel will Will be saved. Now, I mentioned a phrase in verse 26 that is particularly debated. This is that phrase. There are no less than six ways that verse 26, and especially the phrase, all Israel, has been understood. I'm not going to take you through all of them here, but let me just mention the three most pertinent ones. First, when he says, That in this way all Israel will be saved. Some understand all Israel there to refer to the church. Jew and Gentile, the elect of all. And that by the the bringing in of the Gentiles, the church will be filled and thus all spiritual Israel will be saved. Now, for several reasons that we won't take the time to go into here, this is pretty unlikely as the interpretation of that but there are many within the church who have held it and just to make the point that we reformed people calvinists do not just blindly follow john calvin john calvin is one of the ones that held this view (coughs) that is largely seen as not the proper understanding of this today the second view is that all Israel refers to every elect Israelite throughout history that by the the time of the bringing in of of all of the Gentiles that God has determined to save that at the same time then all of Israel will also be saved or after that the rest of Israel will come in and that then all of the elect throughout history will be saved and that's possible though the fact that every elect Israelite being saved hardly qualifies in the category of mystery. That's always been obvious. The third way is that the term Israel refers to ethnic national Israel and that this phrase, this, this verse, points to a large-scale conversion of ethnic Jews at the end of the age or toward the end of the age. And this, I think, fits best with the context of chapters 9 through 11 where the place, the subject is the place in the future of the nation of Israel. Remember, that's how Paul started it. He, has, he had pain and, and angst for his people, for the nation. And that's what's continued to be the subject through this. It also fits best and is consistent with the the clear understanding of Israel there in verse 25, where he says that a partial hardening has come upon Israel. That's clearly talking about the nation as a whole, and so it makes sense that Israel mean the same thing in the very next verse. This is also where we ended up last week, from looking at verses 11 through 24, Well, Paul then concludes his discussion of this mystery, as he so often does, with some quotations from the Old Testament, a a, a compiled quotation from the Old Testament, and that's at the end of verse 26 and verse 27. He says, it is written, as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. This quotation Paul puts together is from Isaiah fifty nine twenty, with echoes of Psalm fourteen seven and Isaiah twenty seven nine as well. This is a statement of how all Israel will be saved, or why all Israel will be saved, how God's mercy will come back to the Jews after the Gentiles have come in. First, he says, it will be through the Deliverer who will come from Zion, there in verse 26. Of course, this is a reference to the Messiah. He is the Deliverer. He is said to come from Zion, from God's city, from where God has established him as king, Psalm 2 says. Second, Israel will be saved when this Deliverer comes, and, Paul says, will banish ungodliness from Jacob. When will that happen? Well, there's some debate there as well as to whether Paul is speaking here of the first coming of Christ or the second coming of Christ. It seems clear that this decisive coming in which Jesus banishes ungodliness is a reference to his first coming because that's what he did in his first coming. He came and he banished unrighteousness, ungodliness. He came and he dealt with sin once for all through his sacrifice of himself on the cross. And it's important that we understand that the basis for the salvation of Israel is the same as the basis for the salvation of the Gentiles. And that is the substitutionary death of Christ, the sinless Lamb of God for sinful men. That which Isaiah prophesied is the ground of God forgiving the Jews, as he mentions here. Third, the third purpose of this mystery that Paul is expounding here comes about when all Israel is brought through that, through the work of Christ, into the blessings of the new covenant. Confirmed and made sure and ratified through the blood of Christ. Jesus said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And Paul says here in verse 27 that this will be, through through ungodliness being banished from Jacob, that this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. This is clearly a reference to that work, that redemptive work of Christ on the cross In his first coming, it is by this means that God will take away their sin, just as He has for for us for the Gentiles. And let me remind you again that all Israel does not refer to every individual within the Israeli nation or the Jewish people without exception. He's talking in generally. He's talking corporately. One commentator reminds us that there's an important distinction between all Israel, which Paul says, and every Israelite, which he doesn't say. How many? What percentage? We don't know. But Paul's description in chapter 11 makes it clear that this will be very noticeable. That, that the phrase, all Israel, is appropriate as we think on what will happen when God makes this happen. And this, then, is the mystery. The salvation of many within ethnic national Israel when God removes that veil that has covered their eyes for so long through the jealousy caused by the Gentiles being given eternal life in the true kingdom of God and through the forgiveness of sins based on the blood and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That's the mystery. Now Paul turns in verses 28 to 32 to a summary. And we can move more quickly here. Paul, who is still speaking, remember, to the Gentiles about the Jews and about God's intention to show mercy to Israel, Paul continues that by giving us here what is really a summary of of most of chapter 9 through chapter 11, or at least through chapter 10. He summarizes it this way in verse 28. He says, as regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Now notice the distinction there. He first says, as regards the gospel, then he says, as regards election. In connection with the gospel, first, Paul says that the Jews, they, there in verse 28, are enemies. They are enemies enemies of the gospel they hate the gospel they they reject the gospel they're enemies of Christ who is the subject of the gospel who is the messiah that came that they rejected they're enemies of Christ and therefore if you're enemies of Christ and enemies of the gospel you're enemies of God so they are enemies but they are enemies Paul points out again for your sake for your sake gentiles Again, in the broad plan of God, this is for the sake of the Gentiles. The Jewish rejection of Christ, remember, is what led to the gospel going to the Gentiles, to us. But as we've seen, that is not quite yet the whole story. There is more to come. Paul says here, but as regards election. that they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. Now remember earlier in this chapter we talked about this, and I think this is the key to understanding this verse because it can be a little confusing. Because we hear election, we, we go to individual election and to salvation. But remember the word election is broader than that in its meaning. And we saw earlier in this chapter that this is a reference to what we would call corporate election. This is God, remember, choosing... Electing the nation of Israel as his people back in the Old Testament when he called Abraham. Calling out that nation as the nation that would carry his word, that would receive his word, that would bear in its lineage the Messiah. Again, not individual, redemptive, salvation election, but this is talking about the choosing of Israel as a nation. And this will take us back, remember when we read this this morning again, this idea of the root of the tree, remember back in verse 16, if the doe offered as fruits is holy, so is the whole lump, and if the root is holy, so are the branches. That was a reference, remember, that root of the tree to the, to the patriarchs, to Abraham, to whom God made this choice and how there is still a a reference there to the choosing by God of this nation. So this takes us back to that idea of the root of the tree, which is holy because of God's choosing. Holy means set apart. That nation was set apart. And the Jews, Paul says here, are beloved in regard to that election for the sake, he says, of their forefathers because of the fact that God had made promises to them. He had chosen them. He had chosen the patriarch. God has set his love upon them when he chose Abraham and made promises to them. Those promises made to the Israel within Israel specifically, those have been fulfilled in the church or are being fulfilled in the church and his work. Christ's work in the church. But Paul says that doesn't mean that God has cast off his people completely. He still will honor, he still will show himself faithful to his choosing of Abraham and his descendants, the nation of Israel. He will still honor that, it says here, for the sake of their forefathers. And that is because Paul adds a a truth about God in verse 29 that the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. The gifts that he speaks of are those things that were given to Israel. Paul started chapter 9 by talking about them. To them, he says, belong the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the worship and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. Tying that all together. God will not in some way take back those gifts. God does not go back on his word. He has shown mercy to a remnant that he has preserved by grace and he will show mercy to a large number at the appointed time in history. That is, when the fullness of the Gentiles have come in. Israel still has hope. They will still see redemption. They will still be subjects of God's, or objects of God's mercy because... God is faithful. He will not renege on his calling of that people. But as Paul has shown, he will again, through this oscillation of redemptive history that we talked about last week, he will return to them, removing the hardening that is currently upon them, and will bring many of Abraham's physical descendants to faith in Christ and therefore to inclusion in the kingdom of God. A point that he restates here in verses 30 and 31. He says, For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient, in order that by the mercy shown to you, they they also may now receive mercy. A mouthful there. A very tightly argued couple of verses there. But simply, he's retracing one more time the steps and the reasons, both divine and human, of this back and forth on the stage of history between the Jews and the Gentiles. Verse 30 says that the Gentiles were disobedient to God, but they have received mercy, and they have been brought to Christ Again, through, because of the disobedience of Israel. Because of their rejection of God. Then verse 31 says, Well, and the Jews, for them, they have now been disobedient, he says. Their rejection of God is playing out now. He says, in order that, and here it is again, that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy through the jealousy of God. That Paul talks about uh, is being engendered in the Israelites through, or will be engendered in the Israelites through the blessings that the Gentiles receive. The common elements of that, and the important thing to get out of that, is that both Jew and Gentile have been disobedient, and that both Jew and Gentile will receive mercy. That is, verse 32. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Now be careful. There there are people who take that verse and say that that shows a sort of universalism. But what are the three rules of biblical interpretation? You know them, congregation. Context, context, and context. What is Paul talking about here? When it says here that God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all, Paul's not talking about individual people here. He's talking about the Jews and the Gentiles. In the context of this Jew and Gentile dynamic, God has consigned, he has enclosed, he has given over all, that is, Jews and Gentiles, all types of people, to disobedience. That's what we've seen, what we just saw above, that they've been disobedient. He's let them go their way. He's hardened, let them harden their own hearts. He has, as in chapter 1, given them over to their sinful desires. He has done all of that both to the Jews and to the Gentiles that he might have mercy on. On all. That is, again, on all types of people. That he will have mercy on the Gentiles as he's doing today, and that he will have mercy on the Jews as he will do in the future. The gospel, Paul says back in the theme verse of this book, he says that the gospel is the power of God into salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Gentile. To everyone justification by grace through faith is to the Jews as well as it is to the Gentiles in order Paul says that God may be glorified by all and speaking of God being glorified by this this dynamic this back and forth God's working God's hardening God's um, showing mercy Speaking of God being glorified in all of that, that is how the Apostle Paul, the great Jewish Gentile to the Apostles, brings this section of Romans to a close. So thirdly, we see God's person and work glorified. Remember back to chapter 9, as we began this section of Romans, how Paul started with great concern A statement, he said, of of great sorrow and unceasing anguish as he considered the situation of his fellow Jews and of their rejection. Well now, after explaining this sweeping mystery that ends with Israel responding to the gospel, Paul ends this section far from where he began it. And he now It erupts in a great expression of praise to God, a hymn of praise. A hymn of praise that comes in three stanzas. The first is in verse 33. He says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. A statement here of of just awe. Awe at the things of God put on display in this discussion. It is praise here of the depth of the riches, the magnificence, the inexhaustible supply of God's perfect knowledge. His absolute wisdom in regard to laying all of this out. Things which cause our mind to just stumble to even try to consider. The depth of that rich supply is to a large degree unknown to us. His judgments, Paul says, and his ways are unsearchable. They are they're untraceable. They are past finding out by our mere, finite, puny human minds. His decisions about the direction of redemptive history that Paul has laid out here in these chapters and his reasons for allowing the things that he allows and forbidding the things that he forbids in this world, even things that often trouble us, they are part of the secret knowledge and the plan of God and we must accept them by faith, knowing that God is holy, God is sovereign, God is good. You know, just now we are faced with the need for great faith in regard to what God allows in his world. Whether it's fires that threaten property and livelihood and lives, it's COVID that continues to threaten and kill thousands and thousands, and now we're, we're being freshly reminded of the monstrous acts of terrorist organizations. We see images on the news that break our hearts and situations that challenge our confidence in the structures that govern us. We don't understand what God is doing, but we know that he is in control. And we know that he is good. And his purposes are good. But we don't understand how, and that's okay. We don't have to understand all of that. We can't understand all of that. We're not God. Paul says we can't. Isaiah said that his ways, God's ways, are higher than ours. That his thoughts are are higher than ours. And Moses, of course, reminds us that these secret things belong to him, not to us. And Paul reminds us of that same truth today. Beloved, let us always praise God for his knowledge and his wisdom. Nothing in the broadest creation and nothing in the smallest details of the smallest aspect of the lives of his people escape his notice. Escape his care, or as Paul said earlier in chapter 8, can separate us from the love of God in Christ. And as we've seen, Christian, also in chapter 8, he works all of this out for your good. The second stanza of Paul's hymn of praise is in verses 34 and 35, where he says, For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid. These statements come out from, from, again, Old Testament quotations from Isaiah 40, from Job 41. These things we have studied in chapters 9 and 10 and 11 are God's all-wise plan. It is the best plan. It is an all-good plan because it comes from an all-good God. Again, a great lesson for us to learn. God is the creator. We're the creatures. He shows mercy, Paul says, to whom he will. He hardens whom he will. He teaches us. We don't teach him. We, rather, must learn from him. Our proper posture, beloved people of God... Our proper attitude is one of humility and praise and worship. And whether that is in a discussion of how Israel will be saved at the end of time or whether it is why the Taliban are in control in Afghanistan now. And many of our people are in such dire straits. Humility, praise, and worship. He doesn't need anything from us. He counts on us for for nothing. He owes us nothing. We're rebellious people. We're sinners. The only thing God really owes to us, we know it, is judgment. But he has chosen to give us grace. He has chosen to show us mercy. And he gives us Christ. And he offers us forgiveness and eternal life through faith in his Son. Finally, verse 36 gives us the third stanza of Paul's hymn of praise here. As he says, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. Many of us, all of us at times, and many people most of the time, think, or at least act as if the world revolves around us. Copernicus, I think it was, gave us heliocentrism, the truth that the earth revolves around the sun. But Adam gave us egocentrism, the belief that the world revolves around us. It doesn't. Verse 36 reminds us of the error of that thinking. It reminds us of that old maxim that there is one God And you are not him. Beloved, in him we live and move and have our being. He knows all things, gives all things, decrees all things, and is worthy of all praise. And he has worked his plan to offer forgiveness and justification by grace through faith to the Jew and the Gentile. And he is working his plan in regard to the Gentiles. He is working his plan in regard to the Jews. And that is no longer any mystery. It's the truth of God's word. And to that, let us say together, amen. Our Father... We thank you for your, your word. We thank you for the, the truth that it conveys, Lord. We thank you for, uh, even in difficult passages, Lord, that your word speaks to us. We pray, Father, that we, would, that we would not be arrogant as we consider the great blessings that you've given to us, that you have not given to others. We pray that you would help us to consider our the light that has been given to us, the salvation that has been given to us who trust in Christ, that we would remember that that is a gift, a free gift of God's grace to us. And we pray, Father, that we would hold that gift dearly, that we would proclaim the availability of that gift to all loudly. We pray, Lord, that we would Uh, look to your word and seek to understand your word that we would rejoice in your word that we would remember O God in all of these things that you are God that you are all wise that you are all knowing that you are all good and that you are working the, the path of this world according to your good plan help us to Be humble before you and before your word. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.